looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, everyone. Thank you for stopping back in another week of Make Money Make Sense. I'm joined by my co-host, DJ Smith. DJ, what's going on this week? Great to be with you, Dante. Thanks for coming in. We're talking to Bill Ham. Bill Ham is the author of Creative Cash. So he wrote this great book on master lease options and seller financing. It's been super, super popular and we've been seeing it pop up everywhere. So we got with Bill and got him on the show. And then he's also one of the owners and operators of Broadwell Property Group. So if you want to check them out, you go to their website, broadwellpropertygroup.com. Yeah, and Bill just has some tremendous perspective on markets, uh, some projections for what he sees going forward. Lots of experience, been in the business for a long time. Uh, I think you really enjoy this podcast. Yeah, and I, I think it's kind of funny when I asked him, I, you know, what are the deals you've done? And I said, which one of those was the seller financing or creative financing? And he's like, all of them. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> it's pretty impressive because you don't come around those too often. So especially not multifamily. No, really, especially in you know the market in the last five years, so to speak. So he does a really good job. I think you guys are going to pull a lot of a value away from this show. And uh, let's welcome Bill in. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. So uh, we're joined by my co-host DJ today. Uh, but Bill, go ahead, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, Bill Ham. I have been in real estate, uh, well, this summer will be 16 years now, so 15 and a half years. Uh, started as a corporate pilot in my uh, financial life, I guess you would call it that. Came out of school, started flying airplanes, um, flew for a, uh, a corporate for a commercial co- property in uh, Macon, Georgia, back in 2002, I think is when I got started. Um, did that for a little while, realized that a pilot is really important from takeoff to landing and then quite worthless on the ground. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize they think that that job of aviation is all flying airplanes and blue skies. And it is, but that's about 10% of the job. The other 90% is like sitting around waiting for someone to tell you when to go home, where to go, how long to do That's what I realized I didn't care for. So uh, I looked into real estate. I spent about a year kind of reading, studying, you know, just going through all the normal material that people go through. And uh, my very first deal was a duplex. And the duplex is cash flow in 300 bucks. I had saved up 10,000 in, in my total life savings. And I turned in the two week notice and went into real estate full time with a, a duplex and 300 bucks. Carve out here. <laughs> Number one, I was 28 years old, uh, no children at the time, you know, so life was pretty easy. Uh, you know, I could live on ramen noodles. And so that was the right decision for me. But I, I certainly don't advocate people just jump up and quit their job with a duplex. But uh, that is how I got into real estate. And I stayed at it for a long time. Um, my first 402 units I did with complete creative financing. So no meaning I didn't go into a bank or a traditional lender, qualify for a loan to purchase uh, that, that real estate. And I just got out there and, and figured out the business and I'm here today and now, now I'm talking about it. Awesome. I love it. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show because you wrote this phenomenal book called Creative Cash. And you talk about that seller financing, that creative financing, um, and even the master lease options. And 
what you kind of foresee in the market a little bit. I've definitely listened to you on some other shows, got your take on that, but talk to us real quick about the book. So Creative Cash, it just came out not too long ago. It's obviously done very, very well. I've been seeing it everywhere. And I was oh, good. Like, <laughs> I was kind of forced to get it because I had, I, it was everywhere. So I needed Love to know it. what all the, all the uh, fun was about, but go right ahead with that. Yeah, appreciate it. It's uh, yeah, Creative Cash. It's on Amazon. We've uh, hit number one bestseller on Amazon. So really proud and, and thankful for you guys and for everybody's support to help me get there. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, the book is on how to to create value in, in real estate and how to get how to make money in real estate by being a problem solver and creating value for sellers through problem solving. Now, how do we solve problems? How do we create value in that business for sellers in exchange of cash? Well, typically it's going to be a master lease option, seller financing, um, you know, different types of actual techniques like that. But the book is about getting results in our business. That's what it's for. It is to show you how to think creatively um, when you don't necessarily have a lot of capital or when there isn't a lot of available lending. And that's why I kind of wrote the book now is because I've been through all the market cycles, the, uh, you know, the up and the down cycles and the swings. And what I've noticed is that a down cycle is typically uh, triggered by lenders pulling back. What we're seeing right now is debt is the interest rates are low. That's an illusion. Don't worry about interest rates. That really doesn't have much to do with anything. Try and qualify for one of those loans. That's the key. And, and we're seeing agency debt certainly tightening up on its qualifications. If you're in single family, uh, small multifamily, the local lenders are lending a little more readily, but they're getting shy to older assets. And so these are some of the problems that I think we're going to have over the next three to five years. And that's why I released this book at the moment is because I've been through the cycles and I know what's about to occur. And I know what skills and strategies you're going to need to have in place to uh, you know, be successful in multifamily and, and real estate in general going forward. Bill, I, I don't want to, I, I want to, I do want to focus on what you just said. Okay. But before we get to that, I think, an individual's real estate journey, everybody's different. And you mentioned how you educated yourself and there's a lot of educational programs out there. Um, so I always say, hey, don't judge somebody else's journey. Networking obviously is, is key. I mean, this is for us uh, sure. a networking thing, getting to know who Bill Ham is. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, your journey into real estate, why you chose the path that you did, and, and just how people should view themselves? What makes a successful investor? Yeah, I, I would a lot of a lot of answers in there. Um, the the broadest answer I can give you: what makes a successful real estate investor is probably the same answer that I would give that makes someone successful at most things in life: tolerance to failure. That's a subject we really, I think here in the West, really don't address properly. From, from our early days in school, we're taught failure is bad. You know, to get something wrong means you are wrong. And that's a horrible point of view. And, and I really don't like that. I understand that we have to teach our kids that, you know, get the test right, get the answers right. You know, I, I get that. I'm not, you know, you know poking fun at, at the school system, albeit I was a horrible student, by the way. Um, a terrible student. But uh, point being is that when we transfer into business and we, we kind of get out of school, you have to reverse that mindset. 
failure is how you become successful and being successful at failure is how you ultimately become successful. You only have to be right once. You just got to be able to be wrong a lot of times to get to the one time that you are right. And, and I hear a lot of people, you know, I teach and I speak a lot around the country and a lot of people come up to me and say, Bill, you know, I need help because I can't make a mistake. You know, I've got to get this right. And my immediate answer is you've already failed. I can't help you. If that's so, your mindset about failing, I can't tolerate it. It can't happen. I've got to get this right. You fail larger than you realize. And, so and that, that, you know, now the idea is fail small so that we don't obviously fail big, but you know, you've got to be, got to get out there and get ready to fail. So that's a, a great term being successful at failure. Absolutely. How is somebody successful at failure? What do they need to do to overcome failure? Right. Well, you got to be brave enough to tolerate failure. You have to get the mindset right. You've, you've got to go into it knowing that it's going to occur and knowing that it's going to happen and knowing that it's actually not going to be as bad and as painful and as dramatic as the world might want you to think. It's not. Uh, it's just it's not that big of a deal. You know, uh, memories are short. Money's green. Just keep going. You, you, you'll get it right. But basically, uh, what I would answer more directly to that question is how does someone become successful through failure is understanding a, a poor concept that we have in the world right now. And I'll ask this question because I like asking this question a lot. What's the common definition of, of uh, insanity? What would you say? What's the definition of insanity? Uh, doing something the same way, expecting a different result. What's your definition of practice? Uh, continuing to do the same thing. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Are you telling me practice is insane? That is a horrible, horrible point of view that we have in, in the West right now is this concept. So first of all, go actually look up the definition of insanity. That's a meme. It is absolutely not what you just said. That is a very common held concept that is not true. That is not in any dictionary the definition of insanity. It's something we've just made up and it's a cute meme and it's on t-shirts and stuff. Yeah, horrible. No, practice is how we ultimately become successful. And practice is how we learn the art of failure. You can't, you can't just haul off and be good at something, you know? I mean, look at any, any athlete, any entrepreneur, anybody that got out there, practice. Well, the, the definition of practice is doing it wrong until you get it right. You know, not only staying there and doing the same thing over and over, but doing it and demanding a different result, not expecting, demanding. And you stay put until you get that different result. That's practice. And that's the concept that I think everybody needs to walk away with is, is practice is not insane and insanity is not practice. So please don't confuse the two. Yeah, Dante, I feel like I was uh, maybe set up a little bit there, uh, but that's a great, yeah. question, <laughs> a great point because gotcha. we know, right? Uh, right. Mastery 10,000 times, right. that rule of thumb. And, and certainly uh, right. it is a great point, but now I am going to have to look up the actual definition of mastery <laughs> or, or, or excuse insane. me, of insanity. Of right. insanity. It's not that. Yeah. So uh, again, geographically, you mentioned the yeah. West. Uh, yes. So tell us what you're doing now, where you're located, uh, markets, that type of thing. Yeah, when I say West, I meant more of Western society in general, I think America. Um, I am personally in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, my portfolio is built in the Southeast, uh, mostly in Georgia, uh, different different areas down here, starting off, as I said, with a duplex, went up, I've been over a uh, thousand units, now about 1100 units. Um, larger commercial multifamily properties are what I purchase now. So typically hundred units and up. 
uh, in the southeastern markets. Um, I syndicate, uh, typically speaking. You know, we, this isn't a call about syndication. We can go into that another day. But I do typically syndicate most of my deals. And um, I have done a lot of creative financing and continue to do creative financing when possible or when the offer is correct. And that's one thing I want everybody to understand about creative financing is you don't go out there and look for creative financing. That's a huge mistake. Don't call up realtors. Don't call up sellers and say, hey, you got any lease option deals? You got any seller financing deals? That translates very poorly. It translates that as you may not have any money and you may not have any ability to actually close. So the, the point here, my point is you go out and you just look at deals, just like you always do. Yep. If you can go to the bank and you can get a loan and you can just pay cash, do it. It's when there's something wrong with the asset that the, you can't get a traditional uh, debt piece. You can't do traditional financing. You can't put down money for whatever reason. Then you go in and you, you look at the deal. And then, uh, you know, Dante, as you probably read my book, uh, I, I talk about the SPY technique. And that's an acronym, it's Seller Property U, SPY. Yep. And that's a, a technique I created for analyzing deals. So what I do is, is I look at a deal and I say, okay, do the numbers work? If yes, I'll buy it with bank. If no, I ask, why do the numbers not work? What's going on here? 80, 90% of the time, it's just overpriced. And there's no solution for that. Creative right, financing right. doesn't solve overpricing or overpaying for real estate. So we're going to skip that conversation. But when you find something that has some kind of distress to it or some kind of issue, then you look at it and you say, okay, what does the seller want? Because see, that's where I think most people go wrong right out of the gate with creative financing is they stop and say, what do I want? What, you know, what, what kind of business do I want to do? What's good for me? That's, that's wrong. You start off with the seller. What does the seller need and want? Does my offer solve their problem? Okay, next property. Let's look at the asset. What's wrong with the asset? Maybe deferred maintenance, low occupancy, who knows? Uh, okay, does this offer help me uh, you know, complete that agenda? And then lastly, you, is this right for you? So seller, property, you, that's the direction you want to try and uh, analyze and make offers. And so that's what I do with my business currently. Yeah, and kind of touching back to you're not going out looking for seller finance deals. Correct. I think that's huge. And that's a huge part people need to take away from this book and from this strategy is you're not going out looking for deals that need seller financing. You're looking at deals normally and then figuring out because real estate is really two things. How can you solve a problem and how can you add value? And you're using seller financing to get right. there. I'm a broker in upstate New York. So when I have people call me and they're like, oh, you know, do you have any deals for seller financing? All of a sudden I get super turned off. It tells me either they don't have any money, they don't have any experience, they don't have uh, bank financing, all these kind of red lights go off and they immediately get pushed to the back burner because I'm not going to focus my energy on those people looking for seller financing because it's not super common. And someone that's asking for that upfront, again, just turns me off altogether. So I think that's a huge point you touch on there. And I just want to backtrack real quick. Your first large multifamily deal was 400 and how many units? 152 oh, was my first large, large one that I consider large. Now, I, before that, I did uh, nine units, 20 units, 27 units, 44, 108, 152 in that order with, and, with a lot of houses kind of in between some of those. Right. And which one was the first creative financing one? All of them. All of them are. Okay. So yeah. talk to us about that first creative financing one. If you didn't have much of a track record and someone on here wants to do seller financing, didn't have the track record to show the owner, I've done this before, I know how to do it. How did you convince them? 
Yeah, that was, well, I got lucky, honestly. The very first one was the duplex and that was seller financing. It was actually a friend of mine. So I got them to give me seller financing on that property so I could go in and then ultimately uh, do a takeout loan with a traditional lender, refinance them out, right. give back the, their money to them. And then uh, I had long-term debt. That's how I did the majority of my deals is either I would go around and I had a line of credit or uh, credit cards or, which I don't recommend, or, um, you know, I had debt partners, hard money, and I would gather this cash, usually go in and buy the property, renovate it, and then refinance at a bank. Um, seller financing was another way that I would get into those and lease options. Lease options work best with more of a burned out landlord, more of somebody that has a loan on the property that just says, hey, I'm tired, I don't want to deal anymore. If someone has full equity on the asset, then you go in and you do seller financing. So it's a little, you know, a little different on which one you do, but um, I'd really have to stop and think about all those different deals. Yeah, I, there were so many of them back then, but that's how I got all the way up to 402 units uh, was either, you know, using hard money, my money, something to that effect and, and getting the asset to where a lender considered it stable. And then I was able to borrow on the after repair value. Uh, now, this was back, you know, be, doing that, it still works today. But one thing you have to keep in mind is seasoning period. That's a big catch. Now, this was back uh, sort of pre-last recession, pre-08. And so we were able to get away with very short seasoning periods. What seasoning period means is how long you have to own a property before a lender will ignore the original purchase price and loan to you on this after repair value or the new appraisal. So these days, if you're going to get seller financing, you're probably going to have to own that property for 12 to 18 months before you refinance it, pull all your cash out and pay that seller off. We were able to do it in a lot shorter periods of time pre-08 crash, but eh, these days, you know, but uh, the technique works. It just takes a little bit longer. So for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with seller financing lease options, can you just generally define each sure. as well as the criteria they should be looking for. The, the way yeah, I say it is like- Financing is, is basically exactly as it sounds. Uh, the bank's gonna, the, the seller is going to act as the, the lender, the bank. Seller has to have full equity in the deal to do that, to be able to finance it for you. If that is a full transfer of title, you'll go through a, a closing attorney or a you know, title company, however you do that. The title will be recorded in your name, just like it was if you went through a proper closing. The only difference is instead of qualifying for a loan with a proper lender, you're qualifying for this loan with the seller. And so it's typically a lot easier to get that accomplished, a lot less uh, scrutiny on your own uh, finances and credit and these sorts of things. You know, in that type of deal, all you have to do is, is be uh, valuable to that seller and convince them that you're the right person for the job. Um, a master lease option, a little bit more complicated, that's uh, essentially two documents, uh, a lease, and an option to purchase. And so what we're doing is we're renting a property with the right to buy it someday in the future. And so let's say Dante and I have an agreement, he's selling me a property. I would go to Dante and say, okay, uh, you know, your, your property's in, in bad shape, whatever the case, I'm gonna do a master lease option. I'm gonna rent the property and we're gonna, I'm gonna then buy the property from you between today and let's make up a number, we'll say three years from now. He and I are gonna agree on a price today based on the value of the property today and under my you know, time there and with my lease, I'm going to go in and control the operations and hopefully uh, stabilize, renovate, or do whatever needs to be done to that asset. Now, three years later, two years, however long, 
uh, his $1 million property is worth $2 million. Okay, now I have, but I have the option to purchase back at the pre-agreed price, 1 million. So uh, that is not a refinance. So this is, that's one catch with a match lease option. You are a renter, not an owner. And that's the difference between seller financing. You can refinance out of seller financing. You cannot refinance out of a master lease option as you are not currently the owner, you're a renter, but you're also getting to purchase property that's worth considerably more than the price that you negotiated for. So that's you know 10,000 foot view of seller financing in a master lease option. Kind of a, a twofold question with that. So <clears throat> A, how do you kind of come up with the lease payment or the monthly payment you're paying to the property owner? And then does that go towards the purchase price or is that going to be on top of the purchase price? So let's say it's a million dollar asset you guys agree to and 5,000 a month. Does 5,000 each month go towards the purchase of the property or is it just a regular lease payment? It, yeah, that? it depends is the answer, but probably not going towards the purchase price. And, and the reason I say that is because what you really want the rent payment to be made up of. And in this particular case, we're talking about match lease options, not seller financing. Seller financing is going to be more like a bank. Yes, every payment is paying down uh, principal and interest, unless you got an interest only loan with your seller, which I like, then you would obviously not be paying down equity. In a master lease option, the payment, the monthly payment that you want, now keep in mind, this person has a mortgage, the monthly payment that you want to make is that is the seller's mortgage payment, taxes and insurance, and hopefully nothing more than that. So no, you're, you're not really building equity in that regard. You're just covering the seller's uh, sort of monthly expense on that so that the property in that seller is now break even. You are going to cover all the operations of the property. So you're going to pay the mortgage, the taxes, the insurance, and you're also going to pay all the operations, the utilities, the, you know, whatever needs to be done. And hopefully there's money left over, cash flow, and, and you're keeping the cash flow. So uh, that is why typically speaking, uh, you're not really paying that price down. There are some tricks that I get into in the book, such as you can make the uh, payoff the same uh, amount. You, you can negotiate your option price to be whatever the loan amount is the day you close it. That's a little extra trick you can throw in there. So yes, in that case, as the seller is paying down the mortgage with your payments, you also are paying down the option price with your payment. So you could do that. That's going to be a negotiation between you and the seller, but that is a trick you could do to, to build equity. Um, you know, another key that you're not asking is we have option money in a master lease option. There is a deposit that goes into that, and that's, that's called your option money. Um, that, like a deposit for buying a house or buying any property, earnest money, is non-refundable if you don't exercise the right to buy the option to purchase property, but if you do exercise the option, that money is applied to the purchase price. So using your spy approach, you, you've uh, just covered kind of the, the basics of each deal and what's involved. As a seller, why would they want to accept one of these options? What's the benefit to the seller? Yeah, there, there's lots of reasons and in, in you have to kind of analyze each deal specifically. Some of the main reasons and some of the best master lease options I've done were twofold. Either the seller was physically or mentally burned out with the deal. Um, the, the real estate itself was not really that bad or not in that much need of, of repair maintenance or, or distress. But the seller, uh, tired of being a manager, tired of being a landlord, tired of trash toilets and tenants and wanted to go to, you know, 
uh, somewhere else, wanted to move away, um, inherited real estate. That's another really good one. You know, sometimes people are default uh, landlords. They don't mean to be. Uh, a spouse passes away, may leave an asset to a family member. They were never really in the real estate business. Now, all of a sudden, they have some you know, piece of rental property landed in their lap. They don't want to be a landlord. and They're just looking for a headache solution. Uh, that's one reason. Another good reason is that they get to continue or may continue to collect revenue from the property. Sometimes I've had to actually do some cash flow share with the seller. So that is a way that you can kind of maybe, you know, swing the value in, in their favor a little is to, to continue to let them cash flow some. There's all certain types of things that you can do. But uh, and then lastly, one of the best reasons would be they're out of funds. This property needs financial injection. There's repairs that need to be done. There's something wrong with it. Um, your units are maybe falling uh, behind in repair and now they're not being leased out. So your occupancy is starting to decline. That can be sort of a negative death spiral if you're not careful. You know, units go empty, revenue drops. So you don't have the money to fix up the units. So units go empty, so revenue drops. And all of a sudden you're kind of caught in that negative catch 22. Um, sometimes a match lease option is really good there. You can step in with a little bit of cash, renovate those units, bring the operations back up. Um, what I would do in that particular scenario would be exchange any option money for renovation dollars. So instead of giving the seller cash, and I do that as well in seller financing, by the way, instead of giving a seller a down payment or an option money, I exchange repairs uh, and keeps, keeps more cash in my pocket doing that. I absolutely love the creative thinking. The first offer Dante and I made together uh, was actually one where uh, we threw in some seller financing and the option to keep the seller in the deal. Um, now, a lot of these things, a lot of these strategies we learn about through uh, single family homes, but you're into uh, you know, this progression of uh, small multifamily I'm not sure what your threshold is, but just talk about these techniques. How well do they work single family versus small multifamily versus large multifamily? Well, I think we're technically asking the wrong question there. These techniques work on any type of real estate, any genre of real estate. That's not the right question. The right question is when do these techniques work and when do they not work? Well, that's an economic answer. Typically, well, let me back that up. The high level answer is these techniques work when someone has a problem. When do people have problems? Typically when they can't sell an asset quickly, uh, you know, at asking price. So over the last, you know, five to seven years or so, have sellers been able to quickly put a property on the market and, and exit and get a sale? Yes. Uh, you know, and even recently over the last two or three years, we've seen that really reach a crescendo so these are not techniques that you've probably used all that often over the last five, six, seven years because sellers have had uh, the tide rising and, and floats all boats, as they say, right? So sellers have had a lot of exit options open to them, just quickly sell. So that's why we haven't seen that technique much. But that's also why I brought the book out now, because this is where we're going, not where we've been. We're going into a down cycle. And I'm not necessarily talking about economically. I'm speaking more to the real estate uh, market, both I think, but still to the real estate market, watch your lenders. That's the key, you always watch the debt and they will signal what the market's gonna do. And so I'm, I'm a, you know, a student of this and a student of real estate and I'm watching debt. And that's why I'm saying we're, we're gonna see a down cycle 
Also, there's some other reasons. We're starting to see some infrastructure issues. Now, that's a big subject in, in politics and in the new state infrastructure, infrastructure. Yeah, but I think we have an even bigger issue in multi, in affordable housing, what we call organic affordable housing in America, which just means affordable housing that has reached an age that it is now typically rented out as affordable, not brand new construction that was built affordable, you know, organic affordable. Those assets are getting really old and they're starting to have real infrastructure problems and the cap rates are very low. So that's, besides debt, that's the other area that I'm really pointing at as a future um, serious issue in, in real estate, houses and multifamily and commercial, and why creative financing is going to be big going forward. Yeah, I mean, let, let's chat on that for a second. So I refer to it as the CapEx recycling bin. You just keep putting money in and it keeps coming. You got to keep throwing it in and whatever you fix continues to go ahead. But you refer to it as the CapEx tsunami. Talk to us right. a little bit about that and these compressed cap rates in these C and D assets. Yeah, we, I, I've labeled that the CapEx tsunami because, again, I feel like a lot of America's for affordable housing uh, is is about to have a tsunami hit. And the reason is I'm an operator. I've been out here, you know, I own my own management company. I have uh, 12 employees. So I've been an owner-operator for my entire career. And I know from a lot of the older buildings, and when I'm saying older, I'm typically talking about stuff built in the 1960s, 1970s. It seemed like pre-1960s, they're mostly brick construction. It's kind of like they don't make them like that anymore. But it was that, that pine frame construction that came uh, really after the baby boomer era, 1960s, 1970s. That's where we see a lot of our larger apartment complexes uh, built in that era. And they're starting to reach physical obsolescence. So you call it the, the CapEx or capital expense recycle bin. And I completely agree. It's, it's like, I always make the joke. It's like, a, it's like a, a bad credit card. You know, it's like a treadmill. You just get stuck on that treadmill and you just can't get off. It's the gift that just keeps on giving. You know, you're making that payment every month and you just can't stop. Well, that's how plumbing can be. That's how roofs can be. That's how old electrical systems can be. You've sat down and you've calculated all this cash flow, but it literally just goes down the drain. You know, it literally goes into the plumbing because you didn't sit down and budget out $5,000 a door to just replace all the plumbing when you bought the property. Why? Because that would have killed the deal. So you looked at the deal and you said, that's okay. We'll deal with the plumbing. Don't worry about it. Yeah, but that plumbing's old galvanized and it was original and your property was built in 1963 and you estimated, you know, $200 a unit per year in, in repairs, you're woefully mistaken. And now you're not going to get any of that cash flow you predicted because you didn't come to the table with enough cash to just take care of all the repairs and maintenance. You're going to get into that recycling bin where you're just, you're just literally flushing money down the toilet every month until you replace all the plumbing. But to do that would take you over outside of the value of the asset. There's the problem. And you mentioned that Dante, today with compressed cap rates, if you're talking about something that's a four or a five cap rate, very low cap rate, and in the next year or two, you start to have a lot of these capital expense needs come up, operationally, you're gonna be a one or a two cap rate. That you won't survive. That's a foreclosure in the making. And that's where I'm looking at the market going. A lot of people have really, really, really overbid these assets without truly considering the cost of repair and maintenance that's going to be going into these buildings as they get a little bit older, older over the next three to five years. That's where I think we're going to see a real uh, inversion of real estate values. 
oddly enough, and I'm calling this a K-shaped recovery, uh, we've seen that, but I think we're going to see a K-shape in the, in the uh, real estate world. The A's and the B assets, the newer ones are going to be the upper part of the K, and the C's and the D's, the older ones, are going to be the lower part of the K, and we're going to see a, a big split between our economy here coming. Uh, that's my prediction, but uh, that's what I'm seeing in these old buildings. They're overvalued. They're, they're under-maintenanced. <laughs> you know, the, the infrastructure's going bad, and people are just uh, really getting aggressive, and I think that's going to ultimately be a mistake. So anytime that we see uh, maybe some, some clouds in the future, uh, I try to take that glasses half full perspective. How can investors capitalize on this? Creative financing is the answer. All right, yeah, what I'm saying is I, I am not negative about older buildings. And I don't want anyone listening to this to, to be afraid of older buildings or to think that I'm negative about affordable housing. I love the C-space. I love affordable housing the problem in the market today for a cap rate on a property that's going to have a lot of repair maintenance items coming in cap rates because they believe the rents are below market. They believe that in the future, they're going to raise the rents, you know, a bazillion dollars. And that's why it's okay to overpay for the building today. And, and I'm saying that that's a mistake because all of that future rent growth is really just going to go to cover the repair maintenance. Creative financing is going to be the opportunity. Is this going to be uncomfortable for some people? Yes. There's always a shift in wealth. There's always a shift in the market cycles. This is where we as buyers going forward are going to be able to create tremendous opportunity is by going in and helping people that made mistakes. Use these creative financing uh, techniques to go in and solve problems, create value. And that's the that's the half full there is that this is going to create opportunity for people that have not had opportunities so far. And uh, use my techniques, solve problems, and you're going to find yourself in a really good place uh, over the next one to three years. So, Bill, where are you operating right now? Where is your wheelhouse? What are you looking at? Are you in B-class, C-class value add? Are you more core, core plus, uh, opportunistic? What are you looking at right now? Yeah, core plus, B assets, southeastern markets, 100 plus units. That's our sweet spot. Um, I, will, I will look at anything left and right of that. But if, if, you know, if you're asking what I, what I want in my stock, good, newer, B-class, uh, great infill location, you know, core plus, not core, but core plus, um, certainly not doing entrepreneurial or anything of that nature. Um, I believe that the, the value add and the renovation market is not the space to be in at the moment, but I believe that we should get back into that space within a couple of years or whenever you can mitigate some of the risk by using seller financing, lease options, something like that. My concern right now is just going over to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or a local lender and saying, here's a property that's not really performing. I'd like to borrow a lot of money and sign my name on a mortgage to buy this really, really risky piece of property that I'm going to pay way too much for. I'm just not okay with that right now, you know, and, and I have the luxury of, of sitting tight. I'm not desperate. Uh, you know, we, we have partners and, and we do a lot of business. And if anybody wants to do business with us, we have a website, but you know, we're very, my team and I are very, very careful right now about, about what we're buying um, because I think the market's in a little bit of a, an unstable place, but um, we're keeping an eye out. I look at deals every week. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, Bill, I think you did a really good job talking about lease options, seller financing and what those entail. <clears throat> DJ, did you have anything else on those or could we hop into our uh, questions? Our curious cues. Curious yeah, cues. I think, I think we're ready. All right, Bill. Uh, we're going to toss some questions at you that we ask every guest. We'll get your feedback. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? 
Favorite podcast I listen to? Uh, probably Joe Rogan show. <laughs> I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts, but I do like his. Yeah. <laughs> it is very interesting. Besides your book, what is your favorite book you enjoy like reading? <laughs> uh, the, the favorite book I enjoy reading or favorite book I recommend? Which, which one do you want to hear? We'll, we'll do both. Let's hear them both. Uh, favorite book I enjoy reading. And I think about that. I read pretty regularly. Um, ooh, oh, I guess the most recent book that I really enjoyed and recommend actually would be uh, uh, Chris Voss. Uh, Never Split the Difference. If you guys That's haven't read that, it's a negotiation yep. book. Great book. I really enjoyed reading that. And I recommend it. I, you know, in, in just, you know, I did not know you were going to ask that question, but I always keep on my desk a copy of The Prince. And a copy of Sun Tzu's The Art of War. So I highly recommend both of those books right there. Strongly, strongly recommend them. I keep them here on my desk and I, I read them and re-review them pretty periodically. Um, not, the, not the most simple read in the world. I understand that. But there's a tremendous amount of uh, business wisdom in these books if you know how to translate it. So that's always my recommendation of those two books. Um, largely uh, unsung heroes in the world. So I would, I would recommend uh, Machiavelli and uh, Sun Tzu, definitely. Awesome. I like it. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? Uh, probably the first deal. That would be one. You know, it's always scary on that first deal. And uh, I would say just get out there and do it. You know, again, um, my my philosophy on doing those first couple of deals is, look, if you screw up one, buy two. If you screw up two, buy 10. You'll get it right eventually. Just don't right, stop. Right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just keep going. So I would say first deal is probably the biggest obstacle and um, raising money. If when you get up a little further and you get into syndication, that's always something that I think people take lightly uh, and should not. And, and raising capital and private money is always a, a challenge. And that's probably always, and I'm not great at it, being, being honest. So that's uh, always been one of my personal challenges, um, raising capital. There you go. Okay. Favorite non-real estate related hobbies. So in your free time, what do you like to do? Ooh, a garden. Easy answer. I love gardening. I'm a big gardener. Okay. Yeah, I'm constantly growing stuff. Yeah. Very nice. And newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started? I know you kind of just touched on it with, you know, yeah. if you buy and, one, buy two. You know what? My, my number one piece of advice for someone new is to keep in mind that business costs money. And, and it's what we call tuition. You can pay it in the classroom. You can pay it on the street, but you're going to pay yeah. it. I recommend that you do not be shy to paying for an education. I think a lot of people out there have a very anti-pay for an education point of view. And I think it's a very limited point of view. I think when it comes to educators and gurus in the real estate space, you certainly should be skeptical. You certainly need to do your homework on, on anybody before you go join a coaching program, before you go spend tens of thousands of dollars certainly do, do, do your homework. I'm not suggesting you just run out there and sign up with anybody that's selling information. But I also think to have a negative point of view about paying for information is a mistake. Yeah. Uh, you know, there you, you can certainly go over onto uh, some of these blogs uh, and read 423,000 posts. And if you have the time and the energy for that, then you're right. You never need to pay for an education. But I think there's an accelerated version of that. At least get a book. At least, you know, uh, find a mentor, find somebody. If you're not going to pay a coach, you're not going to pay for a, a proper structured education, and you're looking for someone to sort of take you under their wing, then keep in mind, you got to be valuable to them. You know, I get people all the time call me up and say, oh, Bill, you know, uh, I'll, I'll come make coffee. I'll take out the trash. I'll carry your luggage. You know, you just teach me real estate. I, I'm, I don't need that. 
you know, I appreciate the offer, but that's just not valuable to me. So you really need to stop and think about it. If you don't have cash to pay for an education, then you better get creative and figure out a way to become valuable to someone who will teach you. But you're going to pay that tuition, you know, in in class or on the street, one way or the other. You got to get that creative cash, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's only like 15 bucks. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, put the plugs in. Websites, podcasts. Handles all that good stuff. How can someone get in contact with you? Absolutely. Uh, so the book, as we've mentioned, is Creative Cash. That's on uh, Amazon, and uh, you can Amazon Audible and uh, Kindle, actually. Uh, so all three of those, uh, we have a website where you can actually come and get a masterclass, a downloadable masterclass, and that is on creativeapartmentdeals.com. So if you want about 10 hours of listening to me talk about uh, creative financing, that's on uh, creativeapartmentdeals.com. And then if you want to get in touch with me personally, email is bill at gobroadwell.com. That's Broadwell, B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L. Our website is also uh, Broadwell Property Group. If you're an investor and you want to learn how to do business with us, go to Broadwell Property Group. And uh, we have a little section in there. If you just log in, we'll be in touch with you very shortly. Awesome. I love it. Bill, thank you so much for coming and bringing the value. DJ, thanks for being my co-host and we'll see everyone soon. Take care. Great stuff. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.